My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Helen Liu and Anne Fitzpatrick. There's a growing school of thought that one way to help ensure that people have the basic necessities that all of us need to live, for instance, housing, is to recognize those things as legal rights. In 2009, a group of advocates, service providers, and social justice-focused lawyers began to meet in Toronto with the goal of forging a strategy to secure the recognition of a legal right to housing in the Canadian context. They formed what has come to be known as the Right to Housing Coalition, a network that has expanded significantly and that has partners across the country, but that is still rooted in Toronto. In 2010, they launched their dual-pronged approach, a combination of public outreach, education, and mobilization, with a legal challenge under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to have housing recognized as a right. From the word go, however, the federal and provincial governments have been fighting tooth and nail against the effort. As of 2015, the coalition still has not won the right to actually present its 10,000 pages of evidence and dozens of expert witnesses in court. In late 2014, in a split decision, the Ontario Court of Appeal upheld a lower court decision to dismiss the case without allowing evidence to be presented, and at the moment the coalition is awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada on their application for leave to appeal that decision. Lou and Fitzpatrick are both involved in the Right to Housing Coalition, and they speak with me about the severity of the housing crisis in Canada, the origins of the coalition, the legal case, the public education efforts, and the importance of winning a legally recognized right to housing. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Anne Fitzpatrick, and I'm a Community Development Supervisor at the Children's Aid Society of Toronto. At the time I joined the Right to Housing Coalition, I was actually a community development worker within the city. The community development team at Children's Aid works on systemic issues that affect families and children in the community. Issues like affordable housing, poverty issues, child care, settlement issues and those sort of things. And that's what brought us into this coalition. I'm Helen Liu. I've just started working at the Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario a couple of months ago, so I'm fairly new here, but I've been a long-time activist and community worker since I was in university, and before coming here, I did do a lot of community work as well, and I've worked with newcomers, and I've worked with women, and I've worked with many different marginalized communities, and these issues around housing come up with all marginalized communities because housing is the single biggest expense for the vast majority of people. And so many people live in really inadequate housing. And in terms of ACTO, so the Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario, we're a community legal clinic, a specialty clinic that's funded by Legal Aid Ontario. But we are fairly independent and are able to do a lot of systemic advocacy work around housing issues. And that includes with tenant rights and co-op members and also with homelessness and affordable housing and things like that. So that's the kind of work that we do here. 
ACTO's the organization that began organizing the case and pulling together the campaign itself and inviting others to join us. Homelessness is something that hasn't always been around in the way that it is today. Our argument is that the evidence shows that when all the policy decisions that have been made through the years, it's just gotten worse and worse over the years. Homelessness was never this bad. It wasn't at the extent that it is now. When you think of homelessness, you think of, you know, that man sleeping on the street or someone who's on the street or using shelters, but it spans so much more broadly in terms of invisible homelessness. So people who are couch surfing, people who are, you know, hopping from place to place, living in substandard, really overcrowded conditions. So homelessness is much broader than what you can see on the streets. But yeah, the policies that the government has been putting out over the years has just been so detrimental. Federal investments in housing has gone down over the years. And because of certain policies that are in place right now, by 2040, the amount of money being put into social housing, so any sort of rent geared to income housing, co-op housing, that sort of thing, will be zero. And that's going to put 235,000 people at risk of homelessness because they won't be able to afford where they're staying. Just things like that, it's just, I think, very dire, and it seems to be getting worse. As Helen said, housing has always been an issue facing low-income families, but it's become much, much worse. We did a consultation with 63 of our teams, our social work teams within Children's Aid a couple of years ago, and housing and poverty came up as the top concerns for our clients. Essentially, what's happening is families are paying more of their income on rent and often in accommodations that are really inadequate. One of the calls we get a lot as community development workers is how to get families into subsidized housing. And it's very frustrating because there's over 100,000 households in Toronto alone that are on that waiting list. When I first started doing community work in 1985, 86, there was only something like 30,000 households on the waiting list. And it was actually possible to get in. But now families can be on a waiting list for subsidized housing for 9 to 10 years. By that time, their kids have grown up. So we are not creating enough housing in the city. And in terms of a national scope, Homelessness, they estimate, has gone up by 35,000 people across Canada, so that now across Canada, they're estimating that 235,000 households are homeless within a year. But as Helen said, this whole issue of actually trying to count the scope of this issue is challenging because there's people that are in shelters that can be counted. And there's people that um, even they do a street count in Toronto where they have volunteers trying to actually count the number of people who don't have a place to stay that night. But what we find is that many more people are defining homelessness, that you can also be at risk of homelessness. And that includes families that are doubled up. They're staying with another family. And that is usually something that's not sustained over a long period of time. It's very precarious housing. We've got youth, and they call it couch surfing, but they don't have a permanent address. Or we've got families on social assistance that are earning minimum wage and they're paying 70, 80% of their income on rent. And one family emergency can happen. And the next thing you know, they can't pay their rent and they're in arrears. There was a program in Ontario that helped pay if families were in arrears, and that's even been cut back. You know, we've got Children's Aid actually sometimes putting forth funds through our foundation and others to help people pay rent or to buy food vouchers and to supplement the referrals we're making to food banks. And, you know, all in all, it's just a bunch of Band-Aids that are not sustainable. And when a family faces a few crises, the next thing you know, they're off to a shelter. 
and we've seen the growth of families and shelters as well. So the scope of the problem is serious and there is no shortage of evidence of how serious the issue is. There's absolutely no lack of evidence. In fact, that's one area that the federal government puts a lot of funding in into research. But what is missing is government-made policies to turn it around. There's been a 47% decrease in federal funding over the years. Yet in Canada, there's been a 30% increase in population. We have nearly one in five people spending 50% or more on housing. Uh, and that is 50% or more of their income on housing. And in 1982, the government was building 20,450 new social housing units annually. By 2006, it changed then to 4,393, and then now even less. And then in terms of things that impact affordability as well, like, you know, our minimum wage is not meeting needs and Right now it's at $11 an hour, but which makes your annual income for full-time work about $22,880 a year. But the low-income cutoff for a single person living in a large urban center is 23647 And for a family of four, it's 43942 So right there you can see that you're working full-time minimum wage and you're actually below the poverty line, which is absurd, I think. And then at APTO, we do a lot of work around tenant rights and rental housing and that sort of thing. And one of the huge issues is rent controls. In 1998, the provincial government eliminated rent control, basically meaning that if a tenant moves out of a unit, the landlord can increase the rent to anything they want. So that's causing a lot of issues around landlords attempting to evict tenants, et cetera, so that they can raise the rent. And it's causing the cost of living for rental housing to go up. Yeah, so things are pretty dire. We have the numbers and the evidence to prove it. Tell me about the founding of the Right to Housing Coalition, about the discussions that it came out of and those initial steps to turn it from an idea into an active coalition. I believe there was a number of discussions by organizations including ACTO, the Advocacy Center for Tenants Ontario, an organization called CIRA, the Center for Equality Rights and Accommodation, some lawyers that work in Toronto on human rights and social justice issues around the role in the interpretation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and where the issues of housing and, to a certain extent, income security fit under our charter. I believe that group did some of the strategic thinking, looking at international law as well. Amnesty International, I think, was one of the consulting partners at the very beginning to say that there's other countries in the world that have charters and looked at some protections for citizens. And, of course, Canada is a signatory as well to many international agreements that outline the country's positive obligations for things like housing and economic security. So I think there was a decision to try to pull together a coalition and some experts, you know, some lawyers to pull together a charter challenge that would identify some individuals that are currently facing homelessness or have faced homelessness that represent the diversity of the kinds of people across Canada that experience this, as well as social agencies and others that can assist the case. And originally, it was just a lot of education around what would this kind of case entail and what would be some of the elements of it and so forth. So basically, in the very early stages, it was how do we convince other partners to be part of this? How do we find those individuals who'd be willing to be part of this case? 
because, you know, they're going to be named in this court case. It's going to be quite public, their circumstances, and they need to be supported and protected. There's been a lot of media on the work that has happened with this right to housing. I believe that we started in 2009, and that took a good year to a year and a half to build that. There was a lot of excitement both around people affected by this issue and in the agencies. We reached out to, you know, Aboriginal organizations through attending conferences and speaking wherever folks could speak about this to bring on other social agencies and so forth. So the coalition, there's a steering committee, probably it ranges from anywhere from 10 to 15 people that might attend the meetings. But there's an email network that's much broader of people that support it. And that support ended up extending across Canada to other coalitions that were very interested in this and feeding into it. Some information materials were developed. Some community meetings were held to share information about the case. And then there's a legal team that was identifying, with input from the advisory committee, what are the pillars of evidence we need to pull together who are the expert witnesses we need? And that was a growing process. I forget exactly how many expert witnesses, but there's many, many, and 10,000 pages of evidence. I think the wonderful thing about this coalition is that although there is a very serious legal strategy, they've equally put time into community outreach, education, and mobilization, and have worked in solidarity with other housing initiatives across Canada and Toronto. They've been able to continue doing that partnership work at the same time as moving the legal case forward and building knowledge about the legal case, but realizing that that case takes time. So in the short term, they've done events every year on National Housing Day that have built upon other initiatives happening. When the Occupy movement was happening, the Right to Housing case did a rally on National Housing Day, building on some of the messages out of that movement. There was something called the Red Tent Campaign a few years ago that was built on an advocacy on homelessness in Paris. And a group in BC called Pivot organized a right to housing campaign and developed these red tents. And a number of groups across Canada went to Parliament. And then I think it was about a year ago, ACTA organized an international conference where I think there was probably about two or 300 people came to that conference. We heard from people in Scotland and the U.S. and France and other jurisdictions that have done similar things, used their charters, used other laws to advance housing rights. When you're trying to build a movement and contribute to existing movements and whatnot, it can't just be a small number of people or communities involved. It needs to be very broad-based. I think with the Right to Housing Coalition, the people involved, There's been service organizations, there's people who are directly affected, there's academics, there's legal workers, there's all sorts of people involved in the case. And I think that's what's been part of it from the very beginning. And I think that's why it's been going for so long. I've been part of many groups that come together and then for various reasons, they end up fizzling away, but we're still going strong, I think. Tell me about the legal side recognizing neither of you are lawyers, but about, in general terms, what is the legal basis for the case, and also how has it unfolded in terms of the pathway, the procedures that it's followed so far? So in terms of the legal case, we're arguing that Canada is in violation of people's rights. That's the main gist of it. 
violating people's rights under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The sections in particular are Section 7, which guarantees the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and Section 15, which guarantees the equal protection and benefit of the law without discrimination. In addition to our charter, also international covenants that Canada has signed on to. We've signed on to many and continue to violate them. That's our argument. So because it involves the charter, it's going to the courts. So what happened was that we identified four individuals and one organization that were willing to step up as applicants in the case. It was probably at the time quite challenging to find, but because of all the partnerships we had developed, there were people willing to speak up. The reason that they want to speak up is because they're thinking of it not for themselves because it's not like a case where you're going to get money out of it. It's a case where what we're asking is for the government to implement a national housing strategy. It seems such a simple thing, but they're just refusing to do so. We're the only G8 nation without a national housing strategy, and it's completely absurd. One of the applicants, Janice Arsenault, she's talked many times about how the reason she wants to be involved and she wants to be in the media, she wants to speak up about the case, the reason she got involved is because she doesn't want this to happen to other people, what she's been going through. She's got a son and, and a grandchild, and she wants to end that cycle for them. The organization that's one of the applicants is the Center for Equality, Rights, and Accommodation, and they're a membership-based organization, and a lot of their members are directly affected and are homeless. And in terms of what's been going on, in the beginning, there were 10,000 pages of evidence pulled together through the tireless volunteer work of two of the lawyers on the case. They're actually doing it pro bono. And then Tracy Heffernan, who's a lawyer here at ACTO, a lot of her time at ACTO is spent on this case. So 10,000 pages in the very beginning were submitted. And what the government tried to do was to squelch it. They basically were arguing that the case didn't have merit to bring forward into the court. We submitted it in 2010, but we're still trying to get into the court to present the evidence itself. There's been nonstop roadblocks being put up by the provincial and federal governments, and they're trying to argue that this case doesn't have merit, shouldn't waste the time of the courts, et cetera, et cetera. It was brought to the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, and they actually sided with the government saying that the evidence didn't have merit to be presented in court. So we appealed to the Ontario Court of Appeal, so that's the next higher up court. That happened in May 2014. And there were a number of pretty high-profile organizations that were interveners in the case. So, for example, Amnesty International, a um, number of legal clinics like Arch Disability Law Center, the HIV AIDS Legal Clinic of Ontario, the Dream Team, Color of Poverty, Color of Change Network, the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, even the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Women's Legal Education Action Fund. So a lot of different groups intervened at the Court of Appeal. We waited for months and months, and meanwhile, in the background, we're still working on the community side of the campaign. In December of last year, we just received a decision from the Court of Appeal. There were three judges making the decision, so two of them sided with the previous decision from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, saying that the case should just end here. It shouldn't be presented in court. But there was one person who presented a really powerful dissenting opinion, noting that these kinds of determinations could not be made in the absence of evidence. She was saying that a motion to strike should never be used to frustrate potential developments in the law. I'm just quoting from the actual document. So she felt that this case should move forward. And on that basis, we feel that because there was dissent, that this could potentially be brought forward to the Supreme Court of Canada. So actually, just this past week, the lawyers on the case have been working to seek leave to the Supreme Court. So what that means is seeking permission from the Supreme Court to appeal the previous decision that was handed down by the Ontario Court of Appeals. 
court processes take forever, so we're going to be waiting probably a couple of months for the decision about whether we're allowed to take this forward and argue at the Supreme Court that this case should move forward. It's interesting because in the media and what people have been talking about in the public around the case, I think there's been kind of a bit of a misunderstanding in terms of what it means. We actually haven't presented evidence that the government has been violating people's human rights yet in court because we're still trying to battle the government around the fact that this is a case that should be heard in court at all. They've been barring us from even presenting evidence in court, and you have to wonder why they're putting so much effort and so many resources and public money into preventing us from being able to argue this in court. So that's an interesting tactic that the lawyers here have noted that, you know, it's a common tactic, I think, from government, preventing marginalized groups from using the charter to assert their rights. The other frustrating thing about it is that we don't often find a lot of coordination between the federal and the provincial government around housing issues. Like even when they are providing funding and they sign agreements for some small programs, it takes ages for them to coordinate. They can't seem to be on the same page. And yet, in this case, you've got the two working very closely to coordinate their work on trying to stop, like Helen said, sharing the evidence. So in the community side of the work, the outreach education and mobilization piece that's running parallel to the legal struggle, tell me about the kinds of conversations and reactions and responses that you've been getting from ordinary people who aren't connected to advocacy. What are people saying about it to you? What's been amazing is what the case has been successful in doing and what the campaign has been successful in doing is getting people to think about these issues in a different kind of way. So housing as a right. You know, most people agree that homelessness is a disaster and that it's such a rich country, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. There should not be anybody who does not have a home to live in. So most people would agree to that. But in terms of the framework, you know, there's the charity model and there's, you know, there's various different kinds of models. And I think what this case has probably been successful in is changing the kind of framework people are talking about housing and people just talking about housing as a right. And that's, I think, a fairly novel type of thing in terms of broad public conversations. And when the decision came out and we were getting media on the case and they were covering it, and I do the tweeting at ACTO here, and it was really interesting how so many people shared the article that came out, for example, in the Toronto Star, and the comments people were making as they shared it, almost everybody was talking about, oh, this is a shame, this is ridiculous, why is the court squelching this, and that kind of thing. So it seems to have changed the way people think about housing, and I think that's been really great. And also what we're arguing for is a national housing strategy, and that seems to be on the tongues of many people and people talking about, okay, yeah, we need a national housing strategy. I think the NDP and the Liberals both have talked about the need for a national housing strategy. So there is support from that level as well. And I think prior to the case, not as many people were talking about the need for a national housing strategy. As Anne mentioned earlier, we hold community events, and this past year, we held a forum and a rally, and it was part of actually a cross-Canada day of action that we organized with other groups across the country, and everybody was calling for the same thing, and that was a national housing strategy. And it was an amazing event because it was a, a rally at Dundas Square and then a march to the Church of the Holy Trinity. And I've been to a number of events at the Church of the Holy Trinity, and it was jam-packed. I don't think I've been to an event with as many people. And ACTA would organize some buses to come from different low-income communities. And it was not the usual faces, I would say, in the audience. 
And I can say at a city level, too, that Toronto is developing a poverty reduction strategy. And I know a number of cities across Canada are looking at that. And again, like Helen said, I don't think we can take credit that these kind of concepts about having strategies that include housing and homelessness are on the table at a municipal level. And it's not the idea of letting the feds or the province off the hook, but there are some levers at a municipal level that can be used, including TTC fares and access to recreation and certain welfare policies and so forth. But I think that the fact that the media and the public are talking about these conversations more, you read it in letters to the editor, like Helen said, you read more of it in Twitter and blogs and that sort of thing. You read now in the paper every day around people criticizing, I think, that the so-called poverty reduction strategies in Toronto may not be going far enough in terms of what's being invested in the city budget. So I think there is a sense that there's people hurting in our city. I mean, we've had two homeless deaths in the last month in Toronto. Four. Four. Oh, sorry, four. Sorry. And that's the most extreme form of crisis that this housing situation is in when you hear about a death. But there's all the other families and individuals that are suffering in different levels around their health and their well-being because of precarious housing. So that's like the tip of the iceberg of the crisis. And it is extremely alarming and unacceptable for something that is solvable. So I think there's conversations happening on a number of levels. Even there was a Senate report on poverty that talked about housing. You've got the, I think it's the TV Bank that's written a report recently on inequality. I think that people are starting to realize this, you know, we're seeing it as a human right and it should be a human right, but it also has a lot of economic implications when we have so many families and individuals not doing well, both in terms of poverty and around housing issues. And if governments don't take some action, it's really going to cost our communities in many, many ways. I think that people were quite excited about the idea of having our charter interpreted in a positive way around housing as a right, which would which would have a little bit of detail to it, which would provide an obligation for the federal government and the provincial government and the municipal governments to develop national housing strategies and that they'd have to consult with municipalities and the civil society sector so that the solutions to those issues and uh, what's built into the strategies make sense across Canada, but that it's something that will be evaluated and there have to be benchmarks and so forth. You have been listening to my interview with Helen Liu and Anne Fitzpatrick of the Right to Housing Coalition. They told me that in the coming months they will be continuing with the outreach, education, and mobilization side of their work on the right to housing, including hosting another forum on the issue, and they will be waiting to hear from the Supreme Court of Canada whether they will be granted leave to appeal the Ontario Court of Appeals decision that was the latest in the string of lower court rulings that have upheld government efforts to prevent the full spectrum of evidence for a positive right to housing under Canadian law from being presented in court. They expect to find out in the next few months whether the Supreme Court will hear their appeal. To learn more about the Right to Housing Coalition and its work, go to righttohousing.wordpress.com. That's righttohousing.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.